From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we talk with the judge who's leading Milwaukee County's Veterans Treatment Court. Then we'll learn about some of the challenges female veterans face and tell you about a campaign to increase their visibility. The more voices out there saying, we serve too, the more someone is finally going to realize, oh yes, women are included in this picture. We'll tell you about a book for young readers that's all about a wind turbine in Milwaukee. I just started researching the wind turbine, asking questions and thinking about what a view it got, what it would see of the city and the port and the Great Lake, and what he might think and do standing over it all. Plus, Bubbler Talk explores a home in an unexpected place. All that's coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. Saturday, we observe Veterans Day. We'll have several stories ahead that recognize the military veterans who served the country. A New York judge founded the nation's first veterans treatment court in 2008 in response to the growing number of veterans appearing on his docket who were struggling with addiction or mental illness. Milwaukee County's Specialty Court for Veterans started four years later, and more than 400 veterans have graduated from the program. WUWM's Mayan Silver speaks with Milwaukee County Circuit Judge Carolina Stark, who presides over the court. There is research that really um, teaches us and supports um, that veterans are at a higher risk um, for things like substance use disorder and for suicide. And, you know, there's research to support it, and I think it's really important for the treatment court to use, right, those evidence-based models and and make decisions in our practices um, based on that evidence and that research. But it's also, I, I think, you know, if we just think about it as human beings, experiences that veterans go through, right, whether they're combat um, service related or otherwise, um, that transition back to civilian life after they've experienced the multitude of experiences that come along um, with serving our country. Um, I think it's really understandable, um, you know, not good, but understandable that they have or are at risk at higher levels, I should say, um, for something like substance abuse, um, mental health um, symptoms and diagnoses. Um, increased at risk for domestic violence, and just being sensitive to um, the contributing factors um, to the criminal conduct, um, not to excuse criminal conduct, not to um, disregard the importance, right, and the focus that we always have still on public safety and accountability. But when really looking at, you know, what is the contributing factor to the criminal behavior, and is there something that research shows we can do to change that? Um, and make individuals and communities safer and healthier. Um, So just understanding that for that specific veteran population, um, it can be really significant um, that their service to country has contributed to putting them at a higher risk for some of these things. So treatment courts are meant to sort of address that, and they don't really work in the traditional adversarial litigation-based model. It's more of a non-adversarial approach. Can you describe for people how that works? Yeah, so you're right, Maya, and it looks um, and feels very different 
than if you are in what I would call a traditional court. Um, so try to maybe to briefly contrast the traditional court from the veterans court and that um, treatment court model. In a traditional court, right, um, that's very adversarial and um, litigation tracked, like focusing right on um, that exchange of evidence if there are legal motions to be um, maybe heard before the court about what type of evidence is admissible, right, um, presenting evidence to a jury in a trial. As contrasted to a treatment court model, again, participation in any of our treatment courts, including veterans treatment court, is voluntary. Um, a defendant, a veteran, is represented um, by right their attorney, their criminal defense attorney. They have had an opportunity right to discuss with their attorney their legal rights and options. And for those who choose to participate in veterans court, they have chosen to giving up that right to to giving up that right to a trial. Um, they've entered a guilty plea or sometimes guilty pleas to multiple charges, and have um, committed to and accepted the terms and conditions of the treatment court model. Um, and then we're focusing right in a very collaborative way, a sharing of information and the judge really engaging in every hearing directly with the participant. That's a huge part of treatment court that we don't um, see in the traditional courts where the judges are really engaging more with the attorneys on the legal issues. Um, whereas in, in treatment court, that judge in the courtroom is really engaging with the veteran um, to give them a lot of praise and encouragement for the things that they are doing well, like attending treatment, providing their drug um, testing samples, maintaining um, hopefully their sobriety, but then also having accountability um, from the judge if they are not um, complying with the requirements and then the judge deciding what the responses should be to that. Um, and so it's a much more collaborative, especially in terms of the information sharing, and then much different in the judge's engagement with the individual defendants, the individual participants. Yeah, I noticed that it's called graduation when someone completes their veterans court journey. Yeah, it is. Um, it's a celebration of an accomplishment. Um, when our veterans um, graduate from treatment court, they have completed a, usually a really, really significant um, series of requirements. Um, not, not anything that is light or um, easy to um, accomplish. And um, they go through, many of our veterans go through different phases where they have to um, complete certain requirements in each phase to move to um, the next phase. And so by the time we get um, to a successful completion of a treatment court requirement, um, which is usually participation is a minimum of 12 months. Sometimes it can go, you know, maybe 14, 16, 18 months, um, depending on the individual, their circumstances, their progress. But it is a really a celebration, and we do call it a graduation, um, to just recognize the commitment that they've made, the work they've put into it, the things that they have accomplished. And I was intrigued by the fact that one of the goals of Veterans Court is to reignite the core values of military service into veteran participants' daily routines. Can you explain that and explain maybe how some of the traits that someone learns through military service can help or maybe sometimes even hinder the progress of a veteran who's also been accused of a crime. In veterans treatment court, as compared or contrasted to our adult drug treatment court, you know, really focusing on that veteran-centered um, care and response. And for many veterans, I don't know if for all veterans, 
but for many veterans, they do continue throughout their life. I think to think about and value um, the core values that they learned in their particular branches of military, whether that is you know commitment to a mission, right? So can we think of um, completing these treatment court requirements as their current mission? Um, commitment to country and community, right? And when we think about someone who has chosen to serve our country um, in the military and the amount of commitment that that takes and the big life changes that that um, requires, um, those can translate right to really successful participation in treatment court as well when they're making a big commitment um, and they are making big changes um, to their life such as you know complying with these testing requirements that happen usually multiple times um, per week or complying to treatment requirements that can be up to a requirement for residential treatment right like taking away time from or time away from work or family to engage in a very high level of care. But also, I think for veterans who have chosen to serve our country, there is an underlying commitment and value to community. And I think many times we can tap into that and build in that um, as they think about you know, what brought them to veterans court, that criminal charge, um, and their value of service to community um, and how working through treatment court is not only important but to themselves individually and to their family, but also to their community. And you've talked about the importance of the judge-participant relationship throughout this process. You have personal experience as a family member of a veteran. Can you can you tell us about that and how that sort of colored or influenced your term in this role? Sure. So while I have not made the commitment right to serve country as a member of our military, um, my dad um, is a Marine, um, right, served in the Marine Corps. And one of the really special, meaningful, I think, connections that I have to Veterans Treatment Court is that my dad serves, his name is Ken Wilhite, so I'll throw that out there for dad. Um, he serves as a mentor, a veteran mentor for the Veterans Treatment Court in the Sheboygan um, County Circuit Court. And he started that before um, I was assigned to preside over our treatment courts here in Milwaukee. For me, that started in August of 2022. And so I've had an opportunity, right, just in um, watching and listening to my dad um, talk about um, not only military service and country in general, um, but as he was participating, um, right, as a veterans treatment court mentor before I was able to serve as the judge in a veterans treatment court. Um, I just learned a lot from what he was able to share. Of course, there are some things he can't share when, about what he talks with his mentees, um, but how meaningful it was not only to those veteran court participants, but how meaningful it was to him as well um, as a veteran to continue to support, right, like that camaraderie um, that is many times, right, important to our veterans and those in military service. And so it's just a kind of cool special connection that motivates um, me individually to have requested this assignment, but that motivates me to serve in it as well. And we know that there are these devastating racial disparities in the justice system. A report by the Sentencing Project found that despite Black people accounting for just 6% of Wisconsin's population, they make up 42% of the state's prison population and are incarcerated 
at 12 times the rate of white people. Veterans Treatment Court and other treatment courts, you know, what's their role in doing things to help address this disparity? Well, I think one of the really important things for a treat for our treatment courts, whether we're talking about our veterans treatment court, our mental health treatment court, or our adult drug treatment court, um, is to make sure that we are inclusive, right, of all of the individuals who are otherwise eligible. And I say otherwise eligible because remember, participation in treatment court is voluntary. Um, it's a, a legal decision, right, that someone has to make after they've been accused of a crime or charged of a crime, even if they meet all of the eligibility criteria. Um, it's, a, it's a choice that they would have to make after consultation um, with their attorney. But making sure that um, we are mindful of both whether it's kind of either a more obvious um, bias or maybe those implicit biases, systemic biases, making sure that we're using, right, like validated assessment tools, that we're not just going on our personal judgment about whether we think someone should be in treatment court or not, how, you know, not just like a feeling we have, but using the validated assessment tools, using our eligibility criteria, making sure that we are, right, reaching out um, to all of the members of the community who could be um, eligible for treatment court and their attorneys to let them know right of this option um, and to encourage them if it's something they're interested in to do the referral to our veterans treatment court coordinator so we can go through that kind of referral eligibility process um, and you know, right, trying just to make sure that hopefully our numbers in terms of participation you know that goal to to match I guess the breakdown in the community, um, whether that's gender, race, um, or other demographic factors, to make sure that we are being both accessible and inclusive and fair. Judge Carolina Stark, thank you so much for speaking to us about Veterans Court. Well, thank you so much, Mayan, again, for the opportunity to share this information um, with the community. Judge Carolina Stark presides over the Milwaukee County Veterans Treatment Court. She spoke with WUWM's Mayan Silver. There are about 2 million women veterans who make up 10% of the veteran population, yet they face significant challenges and barriers in accessing the services that they need. On top of that, they're often fighting for recognition of their service. The I Am Not Invisible campaign began in 2017 as a way to increase visibility of women veterans and to change the culture of gender-based harassment by placing images of women veterans in VA facilities. Yolanda Medina is the director of UW-Milwaukee's Military and Veterans Resource Center and a Marine Corps veteran. She joined me earlier this year and begins by explaining some of the common experiences women veterans face. Well, first and foremost, as soon as anyone sees our face, we are assumed to be the spouse or the partner, not the veteran. So they'll ask us who we want to see, you know, where is it we're looking to go? And then we have to clarify and say, I'm the veteran. I'm the one who needs support. So immediately that puts up this wall of not belonging. Another key factor as you're saying, is the lack of recognition compared to male veterans. So what, in your opinion, contributes to this? My opinion is all of the advertising that goes up everywhere when they're talking about military or veteran. It is immediately the white male combat veteran silhouette. And so that cuts out the female silhouette 
because we are rarely in a combat situation and everybody loves those combat silhouettes. So the woman is excluded from that. So that's the starting point for me. And then it moves on from there. You yourself are a Marine Corps veteran. Do you think it's common that women are invisible, not just as veterans, but also as service members? Absolutely. When I was overseas, I did a quick stop in the Philippines. And because I am Hispanic, I went off ship out of uniform and I was immediately thought to be one of the Filipinos. And then once I started speaking English, then they thought I was a tourist. So it wasn't until I said, no, I need to get back on ship. I'm a Marine. And then they said, oh, okay, let me see your ID. They let me on. So it's always just assuming that it's the men who are the service members. How did that impact you personally? Do you mind sharing any of the other experiences of your own service? It was always frustrating for me because I took pride in wearing the uniform, but I could only be proud in the uniform. Even if I had a t-shirt on that said, you know, U.S. Marine, or I have a cap on that says Marine, and they said, oh, who do you know who served? And I said, it is me. I'm the one who wore the uniform. So it's a constant frustration to have to qualify myself every time. There was a parade in Milwaukee. And after the parade, there was going to be a luncheon for all of the veterans. And as I got to the door, a gentleman put his arm across the door and said, I'm sorry, this is for veterans only. I said, I am a veteran. And then my husband stepped up and because he's a veteran also. And he says, yes, she and I served together. He goes, oh, okay, well, welcome in, little lady. But it was after someone else said, yes, she's a veteran. I imagine all these factors can compound in women, you know, not just being overlooked by those around them, but frequently struggling to consider themselves veterans or having that as a first identifier. Correct. And for a long time, I just stopped even mentioning it. But then I thought later, as I got older, this is important for the women following behind me, that I constantly speak out for them on their behalf as well as my own, so that the more voices out there saying we serve too, the more someone is finally going to realize, oh yes, women are included in this picture. Is that what led you to your current position as director of UWM's Military and Veterans Resource Center? Partly. Um, I've always been interested in um, the military veteran needs. On my desk, I've always had my Marine Corps memorabilia. People ask me for help. Prior to UWM, I worked at Carroll University, and people were asking for help regarding benefits and those things. But I realized that the women were having a harder time because they were, um, the men were deploying to combat. The women were only being activated for stateside service. So they weren't getting the same treatment. So as I transitioned to UWM, I decided to make my platforms people of color, women, and those with moral injury outside of PTSD. And all of those kind of intersect with why I'm here now at UWM. You mentioned there's a difference of benefits if people go to combat versus elsewhere. Does that experience also happen after the service is done? So, for example, are women not getting as much access to other federal resources after their service is done? What kind of barriers are they facing once they become veterans? 90% of the time, if there is any kind of mental health and wellness services for women, it's because of military sexual trauma. And that is 
very prevalent, but we are not given any other credibility outside of that. We do get injured in our regular jobs. I was an aircraft technician and um, I'm disabled from my feet because my boots were not correct. I could only get men's sizes and it tore up my feet and my ears, my hearing is not the same because of flight line risk. But if I come into the VA and say, I need to see somebody, they'll immediately send me to the women's unit for military sexual trauma. And I'm like, no, I'm there for my physical needs because of what I did when I served in the military. The I'm Not Invisible campaign began in February of 2017 as a way to increase visibility of women veterans. Uh, as we've been discussing, who are often invisible, not just as service members, but veterans as well. Can you share more about what this campaign entails? Well, the women in, and I had the privilege to meet some of the women who started this campaign because I wanted to know more. And there were young women who were um, needed maternity services. They needed OBGYN services. They needed breast imaging. Lots of things that you could get at your normal doctor, but couldn't get at the VA, but were qualified to get through the VA if the services were provided. But oftentimes when services aren't at the VA, it's because somebody somewhere justifies it as there's not a large enough population, but there is a large enough population with the women veterans. And um, it's just a matter of making room somewhere for us. But because no one was making room, they decided to do a pictorial campaign and say, hey, We are not invisible. Include us. And it grew like wildfire. The um, Wisconsin Museum has almost 100 photos in their collection now. Yolanda Medina is the director of UW-Milwaukee's Military and Veterans Resource Center and a Marine Corps veteran. If you've driven over the Hone or paid attention to the southern shore of Lake Michigan, you may have noticed a wind turbine over the water. It's the inspiration for a new book for young readers, and we'll tell you about it in about 10 minutes. But first, we'll learn about the efforts to restore the theater on the campus of the Milwaukee Soldiers' Home. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Just a few miles west of downtown Milwaukee, beyond the Brewer Stadium, the Tower of Old Main touches the sky. The Victorian Gothic building is the centerpiece of the Soldiers' Home Campus, a series of buildings built in 1867 as a place for soldiers to heal as they return from the Civil War. Old Main gradually fell into disrepair, but it and several other historic buildings on the campus were brought back to life in 2021. Now, historic preservationists hope a similar revival can be in store for another important building on the VA grounds, the Ward Memorial Theater, where veterans once enjoyed entertainment and camaraderie. WUWM's Susan Bentz got a look inside. The Ward Memorial Theater is a stone's throw from Old Main, and to an untrained eye, looks just as impressive. The theater's exterior is Romanesque in style, and constructed of cream city brick. It looks magnificent, with its round arches and large symmetrical windows. 
Corey Bry unlocks the gate of the tall fence surrounding the theater. He shares a few precautionary tips. Number one, wear a safety helmet at all times. Yeah, don't touch anything. Watch where you walk. Stepping inside, it's clear. The 1881 building needs a lot of love. Pews are stacked backstage. They're visiting from the nearby chapel, another of the soldier home's historic buildings in need of repair. You see windows propped closed with planks, walls crying out for paint, and a battered piano stands forlornly on the littered stage. It's Bry's job to make sure that when the building gets the love it needs, it's done right. I'm the historical liaison for the VA Medical Center, and uh, I ensure that we operate within our National Historic Landmark correctly and that we follow the protocols as far as rehabilitation of the, you know, historic buildings that we have on campus and, um, you know, that we preserve and we work with our community partners like Emma. Bry is talking about Emma Rudd. She heads Milwaukee Preservation Alliance. It played a key role in Old Main's revival. Now the group has set its sights on the Ward Theater and two other buildings on the Soldiers' Home campus restoring the Ward Theater, the chapel, and the Governor's Mansion, all to service the existing veteran residents that are now living in Old Maine. First in line, though, is the theater, designed by the prolific Milwaukee architect Henry C. Cook, and built first as a hall. Rudd says it was a place to socialize and relax. It was a gathering place. Sometimes there were worship programs taking place here. The Milwaukee Road rail line ran right outside the building. People could buy tickets inside and jump aboard the train from this very spot. Corey Bry says in 1898, balconies, a stage, and an orchestra pit were added. This was a ticket booth right here, so they would buy their tickets for the various shows. And uh, they'd bring, you know, vaudeville performers here. A lot of soldiers, you know, it was mostly soldiers that came and seen the shows because Old Main was right up there and it was just a quick, short walk. We climb a staircase along the building's eastern wall, dodging raccoon droppings, until we reach a huge pane of clear glass. That's where one of the building's hallmarks once glistened. It was a huge stained glass depiction of General Ulysses S. Grant on horseback. It was a gift in 1887 from the people of St. Louis and the Grand Army of the Republic. Now the window is tucked away until it can safely be reinstalled. Both Bry and Rudd think the greatest treasure trove to be found is up and beyond the magnificent double staircase at the building's main entrance. Bry says an unknown preservationist of sort painstakingly glued dozens of vintage posters inside a closet. Yeah, so when an act was coming to the VA for the soldiers' home, they they put up advertisements and, you know, these are anywhere from probably right around the time the place opened in the late 1800s till probably the 30s, I would say. Bry had a full military career under his belt before taking on this historic preservation post. Looking out at the theater, he considers his experiences and imagines the camaraderie veterans found in this space generations ago. I've been in so many situations deployed overseas and stuff where... You know, people with all different backgrounds, you know, watch a movie together or hang out at a club or, you know, all these things we do on base. And so when I look at this theater, I can kind of picture what it's like for that camaraderie to take place, you know, back in the 1800s, early 1900s. Bry thinks it could be special again. Yeah. Usually when two veterans are in a room, they have uh, common ground and can strike up a conversation pretty easily. Yeah, seen it a lot around the VA.
Besides her passion for historic preservation, Emma Rudd also has a personal reason for wanting to see the Ward Theater and the other historic buildings here come back to life. Her grandfather served in the National Guard for 45 years. Later in life, he drove veterans from the Marinette area where he lived to their appointments at the VA. So he passed about a year ago, but I was thinking how much he would have loved this because he used to, I was telling Corey, he used to um, drive the shuttle from Marinette to the, the VA hospital and he'd talk to the guys three hours, he'd wait around, they'd pick them up, bring them home. Rudd says momentum is building for the Ward Theatre's renaissance, but will say nothing more until the momentum becomes reality. That was WUWM's Susan Bentz speaking with Emma Rudd, the executive director of Milwaukee Preservation Alliance, and Corey Bry, the historical liaison for the Zablocki VA Medical Center. In case you missed it on yesterday's show, Lake Effect's Joy Powers talked with two PBS Milwaukee producers about a documentary that looks at the history and evolution of the Milwaukee Soldiers' home. You can find that conversation and more information at wuwm.com. A picture book brings to life a very special wind turbine in Milwaukee. You've probably seen it before, on the southern shore of Lake Michigan by the Hone Bridge. Milwaukee author and educator Katie Meyer wrote a book for young readers called Gust. That's her name for the little wind turbine who wants to help his community, but doesn't know how. Meyer speaks with WUWM's Lena Tran about the turbine and her book. Take a drive on the Hone Bridge and you can't miss it. The small lone wind turbine on the south end of the bridge right by the lake. When she first moved to Milwaukee five years ago, Katie Meyer noticed it too and she couldn't get this little wind turbine out of her head. She named him Gust. Gust E. Day. This is what Gust sounds like close up. Kind of like someone's hair is getting brushed over and over. Meyer told me about how her fixation on the wind turbine started and how it became Gust, the book. When I moved to Milwaukee and bought a house in Bayview around 2000. 18, the wind turbine is unavoidable. I mean, I would take my dog for walks by the lake when I went to the farmer's market or beer garden at South Shore, even on my commute to work over the home bridge. I just kept seeing the wind turbine. It was everywhere. So for those of you who haven't seen it, though, the wind turbine stands alone. It's not in a wind farm like most wind turbines that I've experienced kind of out in a rural, very large field area and it is smaller than any wind turbine I've seen previously. Um, in fact, it's less than half the size of most average wind turbines. And it's in the middle of a city, which is very unusual to me, um, and I think unusual for wind turbines, and also right on the shore of Lake Michigan. So it just really stood out to me as part of our Milwaukee skyline. And then no one was talking about it. Uh-huh. I was so surprised as someone new to the area. And maybe it's because I came from Washington, D.C., which is a city of memorials and monuments, but it was such a standout feature to me about the Milwaukee area, and I thought it deserved as much attention as like our Hone Bridge or our Clock Tower or the Milwaukee Art Museum and all these other great features that I was learning about my new city and also seeing kind of photographed and depicted. And then I myself was new to a city with few friends (laughs) at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, COVID hit almost... Well, very soon after when we moved into our new home. So there was like a lot I couldn't do to explore and get to know Milwaukee sure. or meet people. Maybe I can blame COVID isolation for why I 
characterized and named a wind turbine and started talking to it. But fortunately for me, I had one friend in the city who actually just became the new port director at Port Milwaukee at the time that I was thinking about this and researching and writing. And I learned that that wind turbine I'd been seeing stood on Port Milwaukee grounds. So I had one, at least one other person who felt as passionately about this wind turbine as I was beginning to feel. And I just really wanted to tell its story. That's so cool. Well, so you had these questions about this wind turbine, Mm -hmm. which anyone would recognize. Did you just happen to ask your friend, like, oh, do you know about this turbine because it's near the port? Or like, how did you make that connection? Yeah, I think I was starting to talk about it. I got curious, asked questions. And as I was kind of seeing the wind turbine, I kept thinking about what it might see from this great vantage point over a busy working port. I had never lived in a city that had like an active working port. And so the book was always from the wind turbine's perspective in my mind. So I just started researching the wind turbine, asking questions and thinking about what a view it got, what it would see of the city and the port and the Great Lake, and what he might think and do standing over it all. As I learned, I was amazed at how much the wind turbine did for the port and for our city. And the people at Port Milwaukee have been so gracious in answering all my questions and championing their little wind turbine. And I am an educator. I'm in education myself. And so I always kind of think about children's literacy. And so that was in the back of my brain. And so I started to research books that already exist and learned that there are very few fictional books or stories about wind turbines, and especially for younger children, and none that I've been able to find that have a wind turbine as sort of an anthropomorphized character, especially the main character. Uh So I learned a lot researching Gust, and as I learned more, I just really wanted to make it come to life. And also, the timing was right. Mm -hmm. I mean... Climate conversations are happening more and more at the table, right, at the dinner table. We're all experiencing, like, the massive and often dangerous impact on our world and changes in our world. So it just felt really urgent and important um, to share. And I, like I said, I'm in education, so it might not come as a surprise, but I really believe that children are the future of climate justice and that they need to grow up knowing more and doing better than we are. Not that we as adults can opt out. We're not off the hook. I thought Gust could be a child-friendly introduction to wind energy and an entry point for parents and educators to talk to kids about renewable energy Mm -hmm. sources, starting with our very own success story. Absolutely. Can you say more about what you mentioned, like Gus was doing so much for the port. What what is the role that this turbine plays in the port of Milwaukee? Yeah, I have learned a lot, but I always want to say I am an author and educator first, not a wind turbine (laughs) or wind energy expert, because sometimes I get questions and I'm like, I'm not actually sure. But I have learned a lot. And some of the things that I've learned, City of Milwaukee's Environmental Collaboration Office or Eco Office and Port Milwaukee installed our wind turbine in 2012. So Gus turned 11 this year. (laughs) That wind turbine is 100 kilowatts and is 154 feet tall, which is about half the height of most average wind turbines. But it has already far exceeded the initial estimates in clean energy production and savings for our city. So 
kind of a twofold thing that it does. First, it provides the port's headquarters administration building with over 100% of its electricity needed, mm-hmm. making it the first Milwaukee City building to be a net zero electric energy user with clean renewable energy. So it's very exciting. That's so cool. <laughs> Not only does it power the port's headquarters building, but it actually produces enough wind energy to sell some back to the city's power grid. And so it can power up to 18 average Wisconsin homes a year, like yours or mine or your listeners. And so it has both an environmental and an economic benefit. And the savings on the city's electric bill um, since the installation has been about 200,000 across the last 10 years. That's amazing. It's huge, right? Yeah. And no, and like people aren't talking about it. So yeah. it also creates revenue for the city each year. It actually creates about $8,000 in revenue per year on average. Mm. Well, um, I love that you created this little superhero for us. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the thing that I love. You know, it's so recognizable. And he really is this, like, powerhouse little wind turbine. It's very fun to see him come to life with all the other characters on the shoreline, Mm -hmm. whether it's the lighthouse or the bridge. Does thinking that way come naturally to you, like, seeing them as characters? I think so. I think I've always been a book lover and a book reader. I was an elementary educator, still work in um, education. And so I see the world, I think, in a lot of stories And so as I was thinking about this character, I just sort of started characterizing everything else that it would see. And I know that kids enjoy things that move, things that go, right? So seeing things like trains and boats and trucks would help make it feel more accessible and relevant to kids. And then introduce this character, this idea of a wind turbine and wind energy and how it works as sort of a primer for renewable energy. I had never lived in a city that had a working port, so I had to ask a lot of questions about it. And I also hope that kids will learn a little bit about it. There's some, you know, kind of academic vocabulary like cargo and port that are thrown into the book for kids to experience and learn and get some background knowledge on so that when they're a grown adult, they have more understanding than I did. (laughs) And when you decided that you wanted to make this book... How did you move from having the character Gust? Gust E. Day is his full name. Yes. <laughs> I wanted to throw something in there for parents yeah. to be able to giggle at, too. <laughs> I'm sure parents appreciate that. But so how do you move from that character to the central like narrative of the book, this problem that he has, which is that mm-hmm. Gust wants to help, but he doesn't know how? Yeah, he feels really stuck being a wind turbine that is literally stuck into the ground and sees everybody else moving around him in this busy port, whether it's people or the other characters. And then sort of the solution is actually a change in Gust himself, realizing that he also has a job to do. And so that's part of what I hope kids and and parents take out of the story or take away from it. There's these ideas of community and belonging and friendship that actually can really resonate with kids around this age, too. That's sweet. You have taught kids with so many books, you know, as a teacher and educator. So I'm sure that you have many favorites and your own ideas about (laughs) what makes a really wonderful book for kids. What did you want to bring to life in your own book? This is your first. Yes, it is my first. I really wanted it to be engaging. I wanted it to be something that kids would be interested in returning back to. I've really loved the stories that I've gotten from families, parents, classrooms, 
even when they're like, my kid keeps asking to read your book over and over. And, you know, <laughs> I'm like, uh, sorry. But I wanted to be something that really spoke to kids, whether it was sort of the lesson, knowing that um, we all have different jobs to do different skills, identities, perspectives, and that bringing that all together and working together helps our community run. And that even the smallest people, wind turbines, actions can have a really big impact. But I also wanted them to have some curiosity about the world around them and learn new things like uh, the setting of the port. A lot of children don't know what a port is, so this is an entry point for that. Obviously, wind turbine and wind energy and renewable energy. So I wanted them to look at the world differently, seeing these like ships with eyes and the characterized trains, as well as have some questions about the world around them. Mm -hmm. It's such a gift to have a book like this that is getting at all those themes, but it's also like in our backyard and Mm -hmm. all these things that all these kids will definitely recognize. So There's a couple little Milwaukee nods, wink and nod um, in the story that definitely Milwaukee readers will recognize. That was WUWM's Lena Tran speaking with Katie Meyer, the author of Gust, a book for young readers. Meyer will be reading the book at the Milwaukee Public Library's Bayview branch on Tuesday, November 14th. Ever seen an unusual house and wanted to know more about it? That's what Bubbler Talk is about this week, and we'll bring that to you in about five minutes. But first, members of the Oneida tribe have been keeping their language alive through song for centuries. We'll find out more about that history and why it's one Milwaukeean's favorite sound. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. WUWM is collecting your most memorable sounds for our series, Sounds Like Milwaukee. On today's episode, we hear the Oneida Prayer Singers and learn their captivating history. They're a Wisconsin group of mostly elder Oneida tribe members who have been singing Christian hymns in the Oneida language for decades. As WUWM's Mayan Silver learns, it's a tradition of resistance that started centuries ago. Hi, my name is Charlene Helen Smith. Not all of us have uh, spirit names yet, so I can't introduce myself that way. But um, in our language, we say Sigole Swagwegu, which means hello, everybody. Charlene is a member of the Oneida Prayer Singers. You're listening to a half dozen of them sing Amazing Grace a cappella at UWM's Indigenous Felt Knowledge Festival last month. It's a celebration of indigenous culture. The group fluctuates, sometimes six members, sometimes up to 50. The songs are in Oneida, a centuries-old Iroquoian language, once spoken by Charlene's ancestors. It's been passed down over generations. The Iroquois Confederacy includes five founding nations, Mohawk, Oneida, Cayuga, Onondanga, and Seneca. On a later date, the Tuscarora joined. These tribes are based in present-day New York, Canada, and Wisconsin. As early as the 17th century, Christian missionaries began spreading their religion to these nations. Charlene says they forbade the Oneida from speaking their language or practicing native spirituality. So, she says, 
the Oneida found a way around it. If you don't want me to talk native, you don't want me to talk Oneida, how about if we sing it? And so that's what they did. They actually went underground, you know, did like behind the scenes kind of and sequestered themselves away, you know, someplace secret. And they did the singing, their traditional songs. But then if somebody was coming by, like say, somebody to investigate, you know, what they're doing, then they could switch over and start singing, you know, a hymn in the Oneida language. The songs include Christian hymns like Sweet Rest and Till Jesus Comes. The songbooks that Charlene and other singers used to piece together the lyrics were written by European linguists who didn't speak Oneida. So to learn the actual pronunciations, Charlene and the others turned to recordings of Oneida singing groups that came before them. It's like just that fine tuning, you know, of our pronunciation. It makes it different, makes it more authentic then, you know, so we're we're giving honor to those who originally the music, you know, and that we sing it the way it should be sung. For Charlene, participating in the Oneida Prayer Singers is a way to connect to her history, even if she's not participating in church gatherings anymore. It's also a way to create some of her favorite sounds. One of my favorite songs I actually like are, are the ones that are more, have a little bit more upbeat to them. And um, I actually shared with somebody that when it's my time to go and you have to sing at my funeral, don't sing any down funeral songs. Sing all the upbeat ones. I want the ones that leave everybody tapping their toes and, <laughs> and kind of swaying, you know, because when I'm singing, that's what I do. The songs are sung for funerals, holidays, healing the sick, whenever someone needs light and comfort. Charlene emphasizes there's always a reason to toe tap. Mayan Silver, 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. We want to hear what your favorite sounds are in the community. There are instructions on how to be a part of Sounds Like Milwaukee at wuwm.com. Bubbler Talk, quenching Milwaukee's thirst for knowledge. I'm Susan Bentz. The question seems simple enough. A listener had just discovered an unusual house but couldn't find any pictures of its interior. She wanted to know more about it. I'm on it. The address is 3840 North 55th Street. It's in Sherman Park's northwestern corner in a neighborhood called Grassland Manor. A bit of Googling leads to a Wisconsin Historical Society architecture and history inventory of the house and images of its exterior only. Definitely intriguing. This house, built back in 1933, is a sleek, striking two-story boxy structure with a tall tower at its northwest corner. It's pale peach in color, and its contemporary style stands out in a sea of more traditional homes that surround it. Kay Weissman grew up in Sherman Park in the 1960s and remembers riding her bike past the house. There was this big hill there, and we used to just love to ride down that thing. And then we'd see that house and go, wow, is that an elevator in that tower, you know? And so, yeah, and then, you know, we never thought much more about it. And then later I find out it's this 
home show prize-winning house. The structure was designed by Milwaukee architect Henry Philip Plunkett and was built for $10,000. It was crowned Home Show Home of the Milwaukee Board of Realtors' 11th annual show. Its style, sometimes called international, included precise geometric forms, smooth walls, a flat roof, and horizontal bands of windows. The design was already popular in Europe, but this house was a first for Milwaukee. As for its tower, a long, narrow pane of glass extends up its face. Inside, a spiral staircase winds up to a rooftop terrace. But what about the inside of the house? What does it look like? The current owner is a private person and wants to keep it that way. So I gave Scott Bush a call. He's VP of Operations with the Greater Milwaukee Association of Realtors. Did it have photos? Probably about five years ago. We gave all of our minutes and documents to the Milwaukee Historic Society. It's got to be there. Okay, it's got to be there. Next up, the Milwaukee County Historical Society. I am Michael Barrera. I'm the Assistant Archivist and Digitization Specialist at the Milwaukee County Historical Society. Barrera had pulled files in a scrapbook from the Realtors' archives. And these are the pieces in that collection that cover the time span that you're looking at. That search revealed some fascinating stuff. A Milwaukee Journal article featured a photo of the groundbreaking, home show committee members with shovels in hand. The article stated, The first floor will have a combined living and dining room, kitchen and lavatory. The house will have a flat roof, which can be utilized when weather permits. A later article introduces Joseph Elays. Why and who is he? The father of three won the home in a raffle drawing at the end of the show, but Elays never lived there. A variety of renters and one 30-plus-year owner followed. By then, years of wear, the challenges of a flat roof, and leaking that came with it plagued the structure. Then in 1990, Rich and Ann Ward bought the house and threw themselves into preserving the renowned international-style home. In 1994, they opened their doors to Historic Milwaukee's 13th Annual Spaces and Traces Tour. Neighbor Stephen O'Connell remembers the tour, the wards, and the house well. Everything in the house is absolutely unbelievable wood, maintained by the wards um, and maintained by the present owner. Gorgeous wood. It's an open-air concept downstairs, standing in the dining room, looking right into the living room, and then right behind it is the kitchen area. You just kind of move around, no walls. So you're just kind of moving from space to space on the first floor. Kind of unusual. Gorgeous house. O'Connell says the original craftsmanship featured a redwood hot tub in the basement. There's all kinds of amenities in the house. O'Connell's memories of good times spent with the wards in the home they loved will have to fuel our imaginations. There were no photographs to be found. Support for Bubble Talk comes from Palamos Pizza and UW Credit Union. What have you always wanted to know about the Milwaukee area? Visit wuwm.com slash bubblertalk to submit your question. And Bubbler Talk wraps up today's show. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Sam Woods, and Excret Nunez join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Lena Tran, Nadia Kelly, Emily Files, Mayan Silver, and Susan Bentz from the WUWM News team this week. Jason Reeve is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valerio Navarro-Villegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. 
If you'd like to take the show on the go, you can download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.